to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the thoughtful book club podcast that would never, ever speed up or switch lanes in icy driving conditions. We would never do this. We are the podcast that consistently drives at least 500 or just stays home. But I guess, Amanda, when you have a pregnant person in your cab, sometimes you got to hit the gas, as it were. I am Travis, and as I alluded to just now, joining me is podcast co-host Amanda. Go ahead, Amanda. Yeah, are you speeding up in the in the snow? No, because I, I know how to drive in snow. <laughs> you've, been tra- you've been trained? Grew up in Maine, I yeah. guess, that does, and yeah. I grew up in Wisconsin. I think I learned it at a young enough age that the way to drive in the snow is just to not do it, unless there's an emergency. Now, in this particular story that we'll be discussing in a second, that there did seem to be an emergency, so I guess you have to give some kind of credit that they tried. But yeah, don't don't accelerate like that, don't switch lanes, Ugh, just so yeah. needless, reckless. Yeah. Today we'll be discussing The Breathing Method, which is a novella, or I guess short story, by Stephen King. Now, this book club is a unique one because we chose a book for this book club called Different Seasons by Stephen King. This is a collection of short stories or novellas. I would call them all novellas in length. I would do, yeah. Yeah, they're all pretty long. We are not doing all of them because that would eclipse, I think, 500 pages, and we've set, I've set kind of an arbitrary expectation that we're not going to do any books over 500. It's just a cutoff because we want to pick books that people can reasonably read along with. So if you didn't hear in the recommendations episode about this one, the only two we're going to be doing from this collection, different seasons, are The Breathing Method, which we're going to talk about today. And then next book club, so next Friday, we're going to be talking about The Body, which is the inspiration for the movie Stand By Me. And those are the two that we're covering. We're not doing the other ones. Those are the only two, taking it light on ourselves, I guess. Obviously, we encourage you guys to go read those, enjoy them. I, I bet the Shawshank Redemption one's really good, at least, because that movie is one of the all-time acclaimed, whatever, beloved American movies. But anyway, long way to say, we're just doing two of these. Today's episode is on the breathing method, and next week will be on the body. And that is all to say because we're going to spoil the entire story of the breathing method, right? We're covering yep. it all. We're, we're discussing all the full it. thing. So if you are listening <laughs> to this episode, hopefully you've read that one. If you read it in a different order, that's perfectly fine. Save this episode for later. Hopefully go listen to the body one, come back and listen to this another time, that's fine. But yeah, just to be clear, we are discussing the breathing method and the entirety of that story. We're not splitting it or anything. It was only 70-some pages, so we're definitely doing it all in one episode. Um, today, mm-hmm. as I already stated, will be a book club deep dive or an analytical show analyzing the story, discussing what we liked and didn't like, and all those elements. It is, again, by Stephen King. The prompt that was given to me, because I did choose this book, was by you, Amanda. And what was the prompt? Um, It was a return of the one that you asked me the previous week. um, And it was, uh, pick an author that you are ashamed you have not read. Ashamed. I'm embarrassed, I would say. (laughs) Embarrassed. I don't know if I'm I'm not, I don't think I'm ashamed of missing any particular author. There's just too much, you know, to ever feel shame about. I I think embarrassment, you know. I I was embarrassed I never read King. That was a conscious choice. I, I don't know if he got typecast in his own career as a horror author, but... That was my avoidance, straight up. That was the only reason. I, I didn't think he was a hack or anything. I didn't have anything against him. But I just suspected that I, d- I never really enjoyed horror as a genre. I don't like things that are horrifying, especially in movies. And I've seen a ton of the stuff that's been adapted. I've seen Carrie and The Shining and a bunch of other things that, that he created. But yeah, I just don't like horror much. So I had avoided him for long enough, figured we would take him on now. And I had heard from friends and just, I feel like, the popular consciousness that his 
often that his short stories and novellas are considered to be better than some of his long work. I, I get. I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure if you find that to be true. Um, I like some of his long works, um, but I will say that what I have found, because um, I've I've read many <laughs> of mm-hmm. his works, including his short stories, his short stories uh, stray from the horror genre yeah. more so than his novels do. Right. Although one of my favorite novels by him, which is The Eye of the Dragon, um, is I don't think. I would not consider it horror. Um, right, right. But yeah, like it, like with this particular story, this novella, yeah, it's not. I mean, there's like a horror element to it, and it, but I don't know. It's it's not. How as... about this? If this were filmed, it would be horror, though. Like you can't have the climax yeah. and then be like, oh, it's just a th-. like. Th- this reminds me of Get Out in that way, where it's like people. I, I'm wary of horror movies, right? But everyone loved Get Out. It was a huge hit, cultural phenomenon, all that stuff. And I was just yeah. like, eh, I'm gonna hold off. Like I really don't like horror things. They don't. I find them too heightened to really affect me in a way, and I don't find them like. I'm sure there's a, I mean, I know there's a ton of craft, but I find the craft gets washed away in the scares. So I'm just, I can't appreciate it. I just like get really caught up in it. Don't like it anyway, long winded, but like the ending of that movie is so violent that I just don't think you can't call that horror at the end. Like I get that it's a thriller and that it's, you know, there's jump scares, but it's not gory, but man, to have a climax so gory, like I don't, I think that has to be considered horror at that point, but that's just my own kind of preferences and the way I read that though. I'm not yeah, sure if you felt that about the end of this. Yeah, well, compared to like Misery, not quite yeah, as much. Yeah, right. Um, or The Shining. But or The Shining, or um, what was it? Desperation? That was the one that like kept me up all night because I couldn't sleep because I was scared. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, Even Carrie, the- I think. I mean, Carrie's. But again, a lot, in, a lot of Carrie's in the climax too that I can right. remember. I haven't seen that movie in like a, over a decade. So yeah. yeah, that was the prompt. misery. Yeah, right. oh yeah, misery is the the true psychological horror, and <laughs> yeah, and then the and then the ankle horror. Um, something about people getting maimed. Yeah, King must like that. It likes the considering the consequences of that. So that was that's the short version of why I chose this one. I just figured short stories, novellas would be more approachable. Also, two of these have been adapted into very beloved movies. So we are going to do one of those. Like I said, next week, the body, which is Stand by Me. Yeah. So three that, of these no- novellas have been adapted. And breathing oh. method is in production right now. Apparently, oh, fantastic! Okay, I could yeah. I could see that opening up for like I said, if this was a film, some of the lines in here I was like, this reads like a script, kind of. <laughs> I can mm-hmm. see how he's so adaptable, or has been why he's been so adapted. Like there were some lines in here where I thought, like, okay, yeah, that's there's a visual quality, a very clear visualization quality that I think is like could lend itself well to script adaptation so at any rate okay i think we've set this up definitely well enough hopefully if you're still with us you've read this if you don't care about spoilers then hey you know continue on maybe we'll convince you to read it somehow but let's get into it we'll start with surprises amanda as we like to pleasant or otherwise these are things that just took you by surprise i only chose one this week do you want me to go first because i've already ruined it yeah go ahead kind of (laughs) i alluded to it the decapitation did surprise me i just didn't the story had certainly hints of, of terror and tragedy, and they had set that up well. Even if you did a, if you go back and do a really nitpicky read, there is one point when the narrator uh, of the frame, the narrator not in the frame, but of the frame, does mention that he like found a book about, um, I think it was not decapitations. What's the word for it? Amputations. There, there's little bits of like they mention amputating. 
they mentioned the maybe car spinning out of control, whatever. But still, when it happened, when there was the very like very simple, almost neutral tone line of like, and then I kicked her head, and I was like, okay, <laughs> uh, it's very cold and kind of medicinal, which I guess fits with the narrator. But just the way it was described really did shock me. I didn't think I thought maybe the revelation. How about this? I thought the narrative might end at that revelation, but then it kept going and then the birth happens and stuff. And I was like, oh man, this really, he did not end it where I thought he would. He just kept going. And so I don't know if that's indicative of King's kind of general storytelling approach, which is like, don't stop, keep pushing. Because you could have ended the story with him finding the head, passing out, waking up and being like, oh, it was a tragedy. I'll never, like, I can easily imagine that version. But this just went still, to the almost to the supernatural, right? And yeah. so, yeah, I don't know if I should have been as surprised as I was, given that there were hints that the things in this book storytellers club was kind of weird. There were weird, surreal, um, or unreal happenings. But anyway, it didn't lessen the shock. So maybe maybe I'm a cowardly reader or something. Maybe I'm soft. But when he, like, kicked the head and, and the neutral tone of that line, I was like, okay, damn. I really didn't think <laughs> didn't think it would be so blatantly grim. Um, that's yeah. my surprise. I, I don't know if you had one. I, I do, but it definitely wasn't the the decapitation or what followed thereafter, like the decapitation. I was like, okay, so what's next? Cause I have read King. Yeah. That's the easy <laughs> part. Like, let's get to, <laughs> yeah. let's get to the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, what weird thing is going to happen next? <laughs> yeah. I think if you, if you wanted to do the, you know, the really like highbrow literary version, you end with a, a slightly less descriptive death and then, and then end it. But this is a different type of story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, my surprise, um, cause I haven't read King in a couple of years. I've, I've lent out a couple of my books, um, that I've never gotten back. And <laughs> so Fair enough. Fair I just enough. haven't yeah. read it in a while, but, um, the, what I was surprised by was just, um, the very first, it's the third paragraph in the overall novella where you get our first piece of foreshadowing and it's not even like subtle, but it's it's interesting to me um, because when I first read it, because I had not read this particular novella before, when I read it, I was thinking, oh, the narrator is going to get into an accident because it says, um, coming home that night, I would think of the combination of snow, a taxi, and New York City with considerably greater unease. But I did not, yeah. of course, know that then. Right. <laughs> So immediately start with foreshadowing, but it's tricky because if you haven't read it before, you're like, oh, the narrator is going to get into an accident and there's going to be something hinky with that because it's King. But then once you get into like the story, you're like, oh, that's what he was referring to. Tricky, tricky. (laughs) And there are subtle, like I said, there are subtle, if you really want to poke at the text, there are other references and allusions to that kind of, I guess, you know, foreshadowing, right? That hints at what's to come, maybe not in such an aggressive way. Yeah, that was like just straight up and it like immediately like you open the book and it's just like right there. <laughs> forget about forget about taxi driving and driving in cold conditions like that creates accidents. And obviously this was uniquely horrifying. I'm never going to think of the breathing method again. Right. That's the name of the right. that's the name of the frame narrative. Like that's the part that I can deal with, you know, getting seen car accidents in the cold and ice that that just comes with that driving condition. But the breathing part was the, the true horror. Yeah, that's yeah. true. There were things set up t- to be sure. Um, 
we've kind of hinted at this. Let's jump into this next segment then, because I've kind of, to be clear, I think my surprise was neutral. I, I didn't think it was awful to storytelling or anything for it to keep going. I just felt like, okay, this is, it's going to go that far and beyond. Like, all right, now I know I'm more ready for the tone and everything. And so I would say my surprise was kind of neutral. It wasn't pleasant. I didn't, it didn't make me jump up and be like, whoa, this is exciting or interesting. Or it was just kind of like, oh, geez, okay, we're going, yeah, <laughs> we're doing it. We're going further. <laughs> so, yeah. And would you say your surprise was pleasant then? Good foreshadowing, did you think? Um, mine was kind of neutral. I, I yeah, was like, yeah. well, that's, it was surprising to me that it was like not a subtle piece of foreshadowing. Um, yeah, so I knew yeah. that it was there for a particular reason. Um, and I enjoyed it more once I realized that he was kind of like doing it on purpose to like throw us even more off the scent as a reader. So, yeah, yeah. I thought it was like solid enough foreshadow. Yeah. I don't need the foreshadowing to be only like really subtle symbols or something. Cause it, right. that, you can lose the, the reader, you know, or it can miss them. So I thought it yeah. worked. But yeah, let's segue to Please Continue Make It Stop. Now, this is the segment where we talk about one thing to praise and one thing to criticize or critique about the work. This is a unique one just because this story is over. <laughs> so it's not like a, we can critique or um, compliment something within the narrative that is going to continue. This is more, I guess, for King going to be more of like a stylistic thing or some kind of structure that he relied on or something. Do you want to begin with one of them? You can do either first. Sure. I'll um, I'll start with my pleasant one. Um Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of King's novels anyway. So um, what I really like about his writing, because I don't read any other horror, actually. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> um, and generally, I don't even like horror movies. I'll watch the movies that are based on his novels, but I tend to stay away from horror as a genre anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, but what I like about King's writing, and especially with his short stories and his novellas, is um, his his style, especially when it comes to his analogies and metaphors. Um, and he's really great at creating mood and at using language to create vivid imagery, even though a lot of his, um, in his other works, like it's really hard to imagine. It would normally be really hard to imagine because there's like monsters and aliens and things that are otherworldly, but his language is, is very masterfully done. Um, and I have a couple of examples. He used the word milk toast in the breathing method, the, the story within the story um, mm -hmm. of the, when the doctor is telling the story and the doctor uses the word milk toast. And I was like, Oh man, milk toast. That's such a like old timey word. And it yeah. definitely set. And he keeps mentioning later on that it's like, you know, back it's back in the day guys. So of course yeah, post world like war one. Yeah. Pre world yeah, exactly. war two. And yeah, Exactly. So that particular word, just that, that one use of that word, it was like immediately it sets the entire setting for me where I'm like, okay, so I, I get it. Like it's an old timey dude um, telling us a story that took place in a time that we find probably pretty foreign now. Um, mm -hmm. So that just one word there. And then also on page 508, he says, um, at 73, hot blood isn't even really a memory. It's more of an academic report. And I chose that quote, too, because it's like he uses humor as well a lot of the time in his writing. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like a funny little dig at getting old. <laughs> That's right. I, I think uh, my one of my police continues, or I guess my only one, I, the, the narrative voices between both the actual narrator and then the one within the frame, they kind of changed enough and they each had their own kind of distinct sound. And the dialogue changed enough that, yeah, that's what I put for Please Continue. It was kind of like the very well-realized character voices. I've got yeah. a couple quotes. 
now this part also includes something I could have done without, but it, there's a couple quotes here that says, um, it did not flood in. It almost, it instead almost seemed to steal in. Oh yes, I can hear you saying that makes sense. Watching a stop and go light gives everyone a sense of peace. All right, it made no sense, I grant you that, but the feeling was there just the same. It made me think for the first time in the years of the winter nights in the Wisconsin farmhouse where I grew up, lying in bed in a drafty upstairs room and marking the contrast between the whistle of the January wind outside, drifting snow as dry as sand along miles of snow fence, and the warmth my body created under the two quilts. There's a lot of little imagery and kind of sensory stuff about that to enjoy, but I just think I don't love the addressing the reader thing. If that was gone, I don't think it would make any difference, frankly, like the you stuff or whatever. But it is, it's playful and kind of the narrator clearly admits that, you know, he's got his own perspective and bias and admits to his own kind of play up of nostalgia, which then he undercuts later to point to. But I just think those details are incorporated in, in a pretty natural way. And I included the same quote. I'm not going to read it again, but yours about old age. It does give a sense of humor mm-hmm. and kind of realism. And the, it, the, the narrator seems like a pretty pragmatic person that, you know, could perhaps be believed when he tells you a really fantastical story, for example. <laughs> so yeah, I think the narrative voice is both. I didn't include any quotes from the doctor cause we'll get to him later, I think, but yeah, yeah. I think they were both well-realized and markedly different in a way where I thought like, okay, this, frame actually makes sense in that way they're both well realized yeah i agree it it's uh, especially coming off of murakami um mm-hmm. w- that had the two narratives it's like the the way that these authors are able to create two unique voices it's just amazing to me within the same piece no less it's not like they're writing two completely separate books it's just but they and they're so masterful in their craft that they're able to like balance that really well within just one composition. It's just, it's amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, I'll jump in with my make it stop then. Yeah. This is an odd one because in a way I, I really liked it, but then the fact that it didn't pay off, I did not like. So I put make it stop, which would be the strange references and descriptions that within the club that created an eerie, creepy mood about it, this otherworldly mood, the problem is it didn't pay off. It only comes up at the very end when the butler guy is like, well, there's there's many doors in here, sir. And then he's just like, ah, oh, there's more tales and whatever. And it ends. I Like page 525 and 6 jump out because it says, was there something else, Mr. Adley? This is the butler, Stevens. We are alone in the hall now. All the others had left. And suddenly the hallway seemed darker. Stevens's face paler, his lips redder. A knot exploded in the fireplace and a red glow washed momentarily across the across the polished parquet floor. Don't know what that is. I thought I heard from somewhere in those as yet unexplored rooms beyond a kind of slithery bump. I did not like that sound. Not at all. The ending two bits there. I did not like it. Not at all. That's in the narrative voice. It's a little, I guess, corny. I, slithery bump creates a certain expectation in my mind, though, where I'm like, okay, well, is this... What what's happening here? Is this some kind of monster creature story now? Is that is it going to be that this place is infected with something? Is it harboring some otherworldly be- beings or creatures or whatever? Just the fact that none of that paid off, except for a very vague illusion in the end that maybe this is some kind of like parallel universe meeting places or something um, for storytellers. I just didn't. I don't know, kind of a reference like that. I get that it creates a mood and it makes the narrator uncertain and uncomfortable, but he keeps going to the place. He's kind of drawn to it despite its mystery and horrors. I don't know. A thing like that, here's how it read to me. I can imagine that being... Imagine this collection of novellas. They were all novellas told by characters at the club, 
And in the meantime, between the frame stories, there was an ongoing exploration of the club. Like, that's how it felt to me. Like, oh, this is part of some bigger, not a universe per se, but some bigger narrative about the people at this club and who meet there that maybe will get not unraveled completely, but we'll keep getting hints and teases of that. That specific reference, though, just felt, I don't know, pointless to me in a way. Like, I think a lot of the story stuff is accomplished without a reference like that. And then, I don't know, something that specific a description that uh otherworldly sounding just just created an expectation in my mind that i didn't think the story fulfilled and really didn't need to like if that part was removed and stevens maybe just the description of stevens alone like he just seemed this guy this guy seems out of time and there's other references to his timelessness and stuff that would have been enough i don't know i I don't think i needed that additional bit of intrigue about the the club and the other places that it goes to i'm not sure if you felt that way but i i could do without the payoff or i could do without the references without payoff how about that yeah i um that particular this the slithery noise the threat of something alien that was also my make it stop um but i was trying to figure out the, the reason that i i found it kind of um disconcerting is that i was just like okay so obviously he put that in for a particular reason. And so I had to think like, I was starting to think like meta, right. <laughs> and trying to figure out like, what could it possibly mean? So there are, like you mentioned, Stevens is, um, unagingness, right. He, he, he seems to be almost immortal. He's been there like forever. And also the reference to like many doors to possibly many different universes. And then the, yeah, the, the books Alice in Wonderland and door. The, yeah. The books and the brands that don't exist yet and stuff like or that in another so, world yeah yeah so it it does create that otherworldliness and i think thinking about it um because i've been thinking about it all night actually <laughs> um mm-hmm. perhaps he he needed he included the slithery that 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 particular noise to create that threat that menace um and because he also mentions that stevens when when he begins to be questioned um stevens has that look in his eye like you better be careful right and the threat right right the, they maybe he needs to create that threat that menace so, to keep the narrator from discussing it and sharing it and then therefore getting himself kicked out right he said that if if he asks too many questions he will never be able to come back again not because he'll be banned but just because he will not come back, yeah. which he'll, makes me think like it'll disappear as an option for him or something. Right. Or he'll have access. He says people choose not to like, once you get the knowledge, yeah. you're so disturbed that you're like, I just right. need to cut this off of my life. Could, right. could be why their numbers are kept so small. Right. And I, I just don't think those things added to my reading in any way. Like that's the thing is I think the frame narrative kind of held up on its own with a, it doesn't have a supernatural ending per se. Like it's a very medical, you could read it in that way if you wanted to, but the way she speaks and everything, well, I guess I'm sure we'll get to that, but I just don't know why it needed that supernatural twist, that kind of like parallel yeah. universe. Other than I, it gives the entire opening and the setup of the frame a certain mood, you know, a kind of like vastness of the of parallel worlds and sort of like these the oddities of unexplained human experiences, these mysteries in human life, whatever. But yeah, I, it just didn't. Again, it felt to me like, OK, if you plunk this into a book full of these like people at the club swapping tales and there's some stuff in the background, that makes a ton of sense to me. 
I, if this is a movie, do you think they're going to include a slithery thing in a door? Like, I don't, I don't know. I think they will. Yeah. And they'll probably like drum it up more and make it more of a thing. Um, but I was thinking that he probably did that in order to highlight the importance of, so the whole thing is about like the, the ability of, um, the stories, right. The stories themselves to kind of like transport you from, from yourself to another world almost. So I thought of it as like a bigger, almost allegory where it's like the building itself, um, is, the other world full of tales you are able to transport yourself from your reality to give you a place where you can like be away from the real world except for the guy in the club who only reads the times or the wall street journal i guess maybe right. that's his other world <laughs> to yeah. where he goes to get away from it all yeah 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 I, my, it, this just wasn't i don't know that that description reads monster to me, and I'm like, this was not aided by references to like a beast, creature, monstery, whatever. So, mm-hmm. let's talk about motifs. This is a new segment, but we're I think we're going to keep this in for future book clubs. We each plucked a motif, some kind of repeated literary or stylistic decision the author made that we felt really mattered. I'll throw it to you first. Ours are both pretty similar, to be fair. But what was the motif that stood out the most to you? Um, for me, it was the the references to wind, to breathing, to howling, mm-hmm. whistling, anything to do with air movement, um, which I didn't like pick up on until I read the um, Dr. McCarran's actual story. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. I like looked back and I was like, man, like he was really building up to that the entire time. And I just totally didn't pick up on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, but on the very first page, um he talks about how the wind um, on the second paragraph, he says the taxi arrived at eight ten, and I got in too glad to be out of the wind to be as angry with the driver as he probably deserved. That wind part of a cold front that had swept down from Canada the day before meant business. It whistled and whined around the cab's windows, occasionally drowning out the salsa. Um, anyway, so that sound that, high whistling sound of the wind which mimics the sound of the body the the headless body as she's continuing her lamaze though the the whistling sound coming out of her trachea there it's like from the very beginning we get that and then even after um the story we also get it where when he walks out of the building the wind is howling around him there's like the sound of um whistling wind inside of the building too right before he begins his tale it's it's just everywhere (laughs) yeah the to say call it whistling is especially off-putting once you get to the end (laughs) yeah the the joy of a whistle um Mm -hmm. i don't know in a way she seemed satisfied right as much as she could have been in the circumstances seemed pretty content with uh with her kids surviving, but yeah, no, the the whistling, the build up to that, it's all it's all good foreshadowing to be sure. Um, the motif I chose, motif, motif, I don't know what that is. Motif that I chose, <laughs> which we're gonna stick with. We're gonna stick with motifs for now. Uh, I chose a weather one as well. I just chose the cold. It takes place in the winter. Both tales do. Obviously, the the frame narrative has to, since the car goes so out of control and skids on the ice. But even the even the setup and stuff presents you know around Christmas time and everything. 
I think it worked really well for me because of how apathetic and even assaulting the world seemed in both stories. Like he gets into the cab and the cabbie's spewing kind of like, uh, don't you just hate people? And they just have a little banter about how much they obviously philosophically disagree. And he, then there's the narrator, his like dissatisfied home life. Kind of, I think the wife is an interesting kind of calming figure, but he's like not getting promoted. He's a stagnant career guy, just working at a law firm, doing whatever, so I, I think it worked really well then because the, the setting of the club becomes a kind of refuge for him and these other professional, I think all men, unless there there was no allusion to any women. I'm just going to assume they're all men. Like it was like kind of a men's club kind of vibe, country club kind of thing. I think he said that it was like a men's club, oh. so he compared it to a men's club. Yeah, and there's like Gentleman's saunas club. and stuff. It just had all the those, yeah, it had all of the trappings of that kind of setting. So yeah, but it, yeah, then it becomes kind of a refuge, right? They even, I mean, it has a literal like... On page 520, someone like a third-generation English butler. So it's got all these old-world kind of trappings of luxury and comfort for men. And there's other moments, too, where the club kind of takes up that heightened status. On 534, it says, Stevens passed out eggnog to the six of us who had ventured out on that bellowing, frigid night. I felt so keenly excited. So... Yeah, they're cared for there. They, they get warming drinks. There's plenty of scotch, it seems. No one seems to pay any money except for maybe in tips or something like that. And so, yeah, it just it, it worked for me because it really heightened the status of the club and gave it a clear purpose for these characters to want to go there. And it kind of gives them a refuge from otherwise maybe bland lives, I guess. And the, the tales maybe then add into that, too. It adds in this... I don't know, bit of excitement, otherworldly significance to lives that are otherwise pretty neutral. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think he even goes back to the winter and the cold when he talks about his boyhood. After or before the story is told and when he's at the club, it has such an effect on him that when he's in it, he thinks about the boyhood and being in a cold Wisconsin kind of mm-hmm. environment, which can be brutal at times, like not very romantic. Um, but it says the memory was a strong one, pleasant and untinged with regret. So it it does even seem to affect his own perceptions of the past. Maybe even that's the such is the refuge of the club. So, yeah, I, right. I thought the cold and that putting the setting in that environment, making the environment that way. Yeah, I thought it really heightened that that setting and just made it work. I think I think it just made a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Let's move to the other analytical deep dive part of the podcast. Uh, We'll really get into it here. We'd like to, when we finished a work, which we did here, we like to give each other an imaginary essay. We are both educators by background in nature. So what we're going to do is present an essay topic to the other person which they will give thoughts on or outline and discuss. No, we are not reading prepared essays. That would be just insane to me. We don't want to do the actual work. We want to do the fun part and discuss the ideas and think about how we could put together maybe an argument or a thesis or something and just think about how the the narrative fits into certain readings and perhaps avoids or evades other readings. Um, I'll, I'll give mine to you first today, Amanda. I think sure. I've spoken long enough about my motif, so let's throw it back to you. <laughs> The essay I have is related, though, so maybe I almost want to change it now, but I can't and won't because that would be unfair. These are supposed to be prepped in advance, so that would be that would be rude of me. <laughs> but I did kind of just feed you a ton of info about how I would do this reading. Anyway, so the society at 249B, the unnamed club, it seems to be mostly made up of New York elites or professionals. That That's my reading, and I just gave a ton of evidence to kind of talk through that. What right. did you interpret the setting to what what is the significance of the setting I guess is what I would say and how do you read its contribution to the overall story and narrative then and that could be in within or outside of the frame however you want to read it Sure um so what um 
the way that I read this is that there seems to be almost like two worlds where we have um, we see the the main narrator's wife um, who has her clubs. She's got she talks about how she's got a couple of clubs. Um, I assume that she's a stay at home spouse because she doesn't mention anything about work, but she also reads. Right. She specifically she's reading um, The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. Also amazing author, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And he, the main character, does not have any of that um, until he starts going to this um, club, 249B. And the way that I read that was, like, in the club itself, um, there were, they were all definitely working men, specifically. And... There were some elites, but there were also some who were not quite so elite, which we could tell because um, during Christmas time, they give Stephen to the tips. And at one point he mentions like, yeah, I heard the clink of coins, which means somebody gave him a tip in coins, which typically is not going to be somebody who is well off necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, But obviously still somebody who works. Right. I I think that across the board, 100 percent, they're all working men. And I think that they all are there. And, and I think that it's important that it, they're all men and that they're all working men because it's the way that I read it is that it's their way of escaping, just like the main character's wife escapes with um, Philip Marlowe, right? In the long goodbye. She, she reads her books. She goes to her women's clubs, all of that to escape the probably mostly dull existence of their lives and i say dull just because the um the main narrator his life does not seem that exciting he even says that it's like he's just trudging through life yeah especially at work yeah yeah exactly and if work and home are the only two places you go to it's like well you know (laughs) what am i doing (laughs) right so i think that i think feeds into the overall idea that this is meant to be an escape for them which is why the stories are important because stories are a way to escape and we also see that his wife escapes through stories as well for Um, sure yeah yeah so I think that's how that feeds into kind of like the meta narrative, which is just the idea that, which also feeds into Stephen King as an author. And we read also as a kind of like release valve from our reality as well, right? I mean, Stephen King specifically writes otherworldly literature, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's how, and that connects too, I think, to the the idea of like the slithery bump and stuff, trying to create that otherworldliness of of the club and of the the need to escape from reality and i think that's that's how i took it as i was reading it is is that's that importance and we even see that um at the very beginning the first um after the table of contents the very first thing that we see is it is the tale not he who tells it which yeah. is from the breathing method right in this books the different seasons the the page after um, the table of contents. So it's it's an emphasis on the idea, the importance of um, literary escape. I think for sure. Yeah, there's tons to be read into there. And I, yeah, the coins detail is one that escaped me, uh, mostly because it was followed up by the ten thousand dollar bill one, mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. I right? have something like that. Yeah. So I was more fixated on that, which is my own reading, <laughs> kind of narrow yeah. tunnel vision reading of it or whatever. Just because it was 
that that whole thing is under the trappings of we are serving, we are giving stuff to the servant class. Like this is the season right. of where uh, if you're in the upper middle class, you kind of have to do these social niceties. But uh, wouldn't it be nice if the if we didn't have to pay this this seasonal offering to our servant type class? That's how right. I was interpreting that because the narrator has a pretty clearly like neutral to negative feeling about it. But he was excited to do it then. You know that that price right. made him feel so comfortable that he didn't didn't hate doing it. So. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. a great reading, and I, I would agree with a lot of what you said for sure. Any other thoughts on that one? I think it's a framing that I didn't wasn't sure why it was going there. The one thing you didn't mention, though, was the the frame narrative itself, which also focuses, to me anyway, that was what really made me double down on this the reading like yours, because... It is a narrative of American professional, like upper middle class life. Like he's, you know, he has starts his own practice, become successful, started off slow, but kind of worked his way into it, ha, like yeah. had a successful business that he was running. So I think that just made me double down on that reading because of his own life experience. Yeah. And again, we see like a, a contrast too between uh, the male perspective and the female perspective as far as like two very different lives yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. But both needing something more from life unless i'm mistaken the only character work we can confirm the main narrator who sets up the frame is a law assistant or he a lawyer but he's just not a partner his the head partner who invites him there and then the doctor the older doctor so just those are the three confirmed professions so it would just yeah read to me as this kind of like maybe not a commentary on it but yeah, I think that the club functions in a lot in that regard. Okay, um, yeah. go ahead and throw your essay at me and I'll do my best to respond. Yes, the breathing method is a frame narrative, which we've discussed. So um, how do the two stories relate to one another, aside from the fact that it's a story within a story? How does one one inform or affect the other? Yeah, I think my reading, I've given away a lot of the key details, but I'll try and rehash them without being too repetitive about it. Yeah. So I think... I am reading this as sort of this, that there is a way that you can go about an American professional life, getting advanced degrees and whatnot, that does even then become mundane, that even if you're living the upper middle class American dream, that even that can become, I don't know, it all takes on, right, boring rhythms and can become too repetitive to be enjoyable and all that stuff. So I I think probably the most noteworthy thing about this boys club or men's club, however you want to put it, I don't know why I said boys club, (laughs) maybe because they're, they're just like sharing their little tales, like boy in a boys locker room kind of vibe. But anyway, men's club, Um, I think probably one of the most crucial, maybe underrated details is that it inspires him to lie to his wife. And and he goes out of his way twice to say like, I would never have done that. But I, but he clearly wants to keep this as a secret from her. Who otherwise she has, like you said, her own social engagements and things going on, volunteer things and, and clubs and stuff. And so, you know, she makes the oink oink joke about how they're like these pointless men doing these silly piggish things at their club. But yet he's also, you know, kind of taken with it and persuaded and sort of it wraps him in its warm, scotchy embrace or whatever. And so mm-hmm. I think it is the club is then kind of a haven for those who have these quiet but really effective private lives, these lives that are. Un, maybe unexplored they think or so, sort of like not worth exploring in upper middle class America and then so to get to the frame part then that's where the frame really doubled my reading in that way just because think about how that frame sets up right it's about as noble American a beginning as you get he's a war veteran it hardened him it gave him life expertise you know like he wasn't the one in med school throwing up at the operations he was toughened and I just don't right. think you're going to find a more 
American heroism origin story than a war. It just is a tale that we were one of the most militaristic countries or nations or empires or whatever to have ever existed like we there's like 10 years in american history when we weren't in a war of some kind <laughs> or right. in some kind of conflict or fight or however you want to phrase that i get that congress doesn't seem to have to declare war anymore we can just fight proxy wars for infinity or whatever but yeah it's just like when you have a people this war like it, that is about as American an opening as we get. And it also comes up at the end because during the climactic moment, he starts screaming at the nurse as if she is in the conflict with him. So he's got this mm-hmm. kind of PTSD going on then too. But there were just so many ways that that passage in his narrative voice were sort of tinged in medical professionalism. Like a lot of his character development within that frame is about how, for example, on, on 542, he throws out some shade about he is like the, you know, he keeps up with his job. He cares for his work, right? He he sh- throws shade at other ones. Um, another, another sterling piece of advice it reads, given by a good many doctors, was that moderately overweight mothers-to-be should take up smoking. Smoking. The rationale was perfectly expressed by an advertising slogan of the day. Have a lucky instead of a sweet. People who have the idea that when we entered the 20th century, we also entered an age of medical light and reason have no idea how utterly crazy medicine could sometimes be. So he casts himself in this voice where he is like the pragmatic, level-headed professional. Like, he's the one who makes the reasonable decisions. He's the one who is accommodating and welcoming. He's not socially off-putting. He doesn't throw the the woman away when she comes to him for help. But he also, crucially, this is a great American trait, does does not say he's progressive when she asks him. I think that's, that's on page, uh, page 550. Let me go pull that quick before I forget to. Um, let me see if I can find this. Give me a second. I'm going to have to cut some of this out. Yeah. But he, yeah, he rides that perfect line between I'm a smart man who keeps up and takes his work seriously, but also, you know, it says doctors were responsible for some of this hysteria, I'm sorry to say. The stories of pregnant women heard from friends and relatives who had already been through the birthing process also contributed to it. Believe me, if you are told that some experience is going to hurt, it will hurt. Most pain is in the mind. And then, so that's, he goes on to basically justify why he believed in the breathing method, how he came to be a practitioner of it and how it helped them avoid like, quote, they had that they had entered the valley of the shadow of death. That's kind of the perception around pregnancy at the time. And he was working to dispel it. So he wants to come across as sort of like educated and um, hardworking. You know, he keeps up with the times. He's smart, but also didn't, he's not progressive. Like he doesn't want to rock the boat so much. You know, he doesn't want to cop right. to that. And so between all those details, his origins, the the way that he just describes things in this kind of neutral medicinal way, at some point they, they do interrupt his narrative to ask, like, well, did you love her? And he sort of, he gets a little romantic or misty-eyed at that point, but n- not too much. You know what I mean? He doesn't go full-blown melodrama or whatever. Anyway, long-winded way to set up this essay, but I do think my reading would be Something about that, about the tone of an American professional, about the lack of maybe these the heroism in, a, in an everyday kind of mundane professionalized life and how these stories, this club gives this little haven to people who want to, I don't know, the, the crude way to put it would be like to spice it up. You know, I don't I don't know if a story of decapitation makes anything spiced up. It's maybe a bit more horrific than just a fun tale, if that were real, obviously. But because for us, this story was a fun, you know, we do this book club, right? It's a good way to spice things right, up, yeah. keeps things fun. Um, talking about literature, one of the great pleasures. But yeah, so that's how I'm reading those two narratives playing together. That's that's what I came away with. Any any thoughts on the dual narratives or the frame? No, I think that's great. I, I it 
ties in actually really well with my point, which was, you know, the escape from the mundane, from the, from the realities of their existence. So yeah, I think that fits in well with my own reading. Yeah. The text as well. A, a, he was taught her a method so effective that it worked after she died. That's, you know, yep. talk about an Super achievement. Super effective, which is also ironic because it was the breathing that distracted the cab driver and made him have the accident in the first place. So it's a little, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that part, that part I think felt that was like writing, that was writing that hit something home but it was kind of like you didn't need to include that i get that you would that what the why of why you did that but yeah that felt to me like maybe a little too much explaining going on or something in the background Mm -hmm. but no yeah that was definitely noteworthy affected the (laughs) affected the story quite a lot made it doubly disturbing always always hate to be the cause of a horrific death you know yeah (laughs) was there any reading i think the only major story element i'd never mentioned in today all of our segments and discussion was the statue in the hospital and stuff what was the Mm. do you have a reading on that or any interpretations of that it was kind of a a stern woman right statue it's yeah his uh mccarran's father's first wife oh okay yeah and so it was a personal connection to the narrator, but also yeah. it. I thought it served as kind of like foreshadowing, right? There's no, um, like life is just suffering essentially, right? There's that's what it was. The inscription, yeah, it was sort of like yeah. you have to not get your penance out of that, but you have to have your salvation through suffering or something. That yeah, o- only totally. through the suffering can we be saved and redeemed as people or something like that and you know she was redeemed because her son is a yale professor and that's the talk about talk about like a a bit upper of the upper middle class american life like aspirations you know he's a tenured professor now talk about like the ultimate well i guess before the past maybe four or so years but professors used to be kind of uh, that's a very vaulted um position of protected professional respect or something it's like one of the ultimate achievements in american life is that you become you hold one of those positions that imbues you with a certain amount of credibility and respectability and stability and all the other things that yeah people seek so yeah and he was even like the department head and well on his way to being president of the of the university anyway yeah 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 so her her very steel-wheeled suffering led to a truly great outcome for her son. So, you know, mm-hmm. the breathing method pays off again. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't hear it with and cringe now. Maybe I shouldn't think of it in disgust, but instead with admiration that, uh, yeah. that it cre- created such a great result. And, you know, who knows without it, maybe she wouldn't have given birth and yada, yada, we could go on. Any yeah. final thoughts on the breathing method? Any predictions for its film interpretation? I think it's going to be really interesting. I, I, I feel like, um, people who make Stephen King's movies as far as like his novellas and his short stories, they do a better job than some of his uh, more out there works a mm-hmm. lot of the time. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking specifically like Pet Cemetery. <laughs> okay. They just <laughs> like, remade that too recently, like a year or two ago. I have not seen the new remake. Okay. Yeah. They, yeah. they made a, a very updated version and who knows for how long his stories will continue to get retold and updated. I mean, they're, pretty amazing and very imaginative so yeah <laughs> imagine forever <laughs> i think yeah that's fair that's fair did you read the epilogue by chance no it's right the after the, yeah the afterward sorry not an epilogue i did not i read part of it it was pretty illuminating he seems pretty self-aware it was it, it was mostly about his early literary career and how he kind of got typecast into the horror guy um but he seems mm-hmm. pretty realistic about you know how he 
fits in in terms of literary history and his strengths and weaknesses as an author and all that stuff. Like he, he seems pretty clear that he isn't trying to make literary masterworks or something like that, that he more is just kind of an inventive, likes to come up with inventive, maybe crazy premises and kind of ride them out. And this was that. Yeah. I, I think in terms of short storytelling, I, this really worked for me. I overall enjoyed it quite a lot for my first King exposure. Yeah, I, I nodded along and enjoyed a lot of it. I thought I thought it had some, some good capital L literary bits. I think the two narratives inform each other in a kind of a subtle way. The framing was intriguing to me. Um, yeah. And yeah, and maybe played up some elements. It, it made some things maybe we would say obvious, but I don't know. I don't think that's, that's usually not a negative thing in literature for the most part because... If it doesn't come along with didactic explanations, but it's still the symbols or the, I don't know, the motifs feel obvious, I feel like that's that's a good side to land on. Where it's like, there's pretty I, clear I readings of this, but I'm not being told how to read it either. I think that's a great kind of middle ground. So, yeah, no, I have really enjoyed it. I, I don't know what King novel I would do. Probably not a horror one. Is Salem's Lot horrifying? I was intrigued by the premise. Yes, it's, yeah. Okay, that's a horror one it's, straight up. Yeah, I mean, it's not as, as scary as some of the other ones. I would say if you want to read another one that's not horror by him and you and you want it to be a novel, you should read um, The Eyes of the Dragon. Okay. Which the premise is what? Simple. It's more of a fantasy novel almost. Oh, okay. Eyes of the Dragon. I'll keep that one in mind. I did almost pick for this. the He wrote one called The Institution or The Institute a couple of years ago, so one of his new works, that is oh, about kids that. who get kidnapped into a program because they have kind of like – um, telepathic powers or like fire they can like create fire or something so they're kind of kidnapped and then forced to train I, I guess I had only read a couple descriptions of it just to get a sense of what I should pick but I think that one went a bit over 400 pages so I think I, that's why I paused I was like oh I want to pick something a little more brief so his only sh really short novels by the way an author who seems to to know how to get long-winded and it may be for better or worse, but these only really short novels were like Carrie and Misery. And I thought both would be a little more intense than what I wanted for my first foray into King. I I absolutely love Misery. Um. I was tempted. <laughs> I like that movie. So I can deal the the psychological horror stuff. I can kind of get by when his foot gets clubbed in that movie. <laughs> that doesn't. Yeah, that puts me off a bit. But yeah, that story I really enjoyed. Maybe. Yeah, maybe we'll revisit Misery at some point. Maybe that'll be a prompt yeah. later is like pick an author we already did and pick another one or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I mean, if you want a shorter one too, the the one that I mentioned, The Eyes of the Dragon, it says that it's 326 pages, so a Very bit shorter reasonable. for a King novel. Very yeah. reasonable. What I really want to do though is do – because I heard that he wrote this epic, his longest one is The Stand, which then I read was he was trying to interpret Lord of the Rings for America and just sort of do his like mega masterwork or whatever. Maybe what I want to do is just read that over the course of like five years and maybe read a chunk of it per year kind of a thing. Break it up into oh, yeah. three novels all by myself kind of a thing. Because I yeah. think, yeah, a story in that scope and scale could probably, that's probably how I would want to approach it is like read a third of it and then come back. And, you know, read a summary and then go back to it and stuff. Because people seem to really love The Stand. Maybe it's just King diehards or whatever who, you know, are going to defend the really intense, long masterwork <laughs> like that. You know, the, the like 1100 page opus. But yeah, the, the premise of it intrigued me the most. Maybe because we're living in virus times. Maybe that's it. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read The Stand. I have not. I have a copy of it. I've got yeah. a hard copy of it. Good Lord. Yeah, I have not yet uh, undertaken it. <laughs> In that case, do you use it as a door stopper? Then it's standing by the door? <laughs> no. 
it's on my bookshelf and I have an entire um, bookshelf dedicated to Stephen King. That's how many of his novels oh, cool. I have. But. Okay. <laughs> Had you read, oh, I guess I should have asked then. I know I've been diligent about asking off the pod. This is all, we're, we're just unveiling, we're pulling back the curtain for listeners now, but did you already read this story then before? I have not read this story. Okay. I've read Shawshank Redemption before. Had you done The Body um, before? I have not read The Body. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, I chose two. All right. Good on me then. That was incidental. I wanted to pick two that were fresh, so hey, we got lucky. Yeah. And maybe the Shawshank story I'll do. I've, I haven't been quite as infatuated with that movie as others. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was quite good, but I wasn't in high school, wasn't as taken as like critics and audience seem to have been, but the, um, the novella might intrigue me a bit. Okay. Any final thoughts on King before we come back next week? To be clear, next week on 312, that's March 12th, we will be doing a book club on just the novella The Body, as I think we've alluded to plenty here. So if you didn't read this one or want to revisit this one later, that's fine. We'll be doing The Body next week. Any final thoughts on this one, Amanda, before we close out? Um, no, just that it was a, a great read, and, and I just love yeah. Stephen King's style, actually, d- despite not liking horror in general. Yeah, really readable, really enjoyable. couple brief reminders then, a bit of logistics here. As I mentioned, part two of this book club on the body will be coming out March 12th. That's 312. Also note, quick announcement, the next book, if you haven't been reading Stephen King with us, but you've been listening in, the next book we are doing is Kim Ji-young, born 1982. That was your pick, Amanda. Do you want to give a brief synopsis of it or why you picked it? Uh, yes, it, I chose it because you gave me the prompt to uh, choose a book that was translated from a different language. So this one is a Korean author, uh, Cho Namju, and she spearheaded this book, which also became a movie um, in Korea um, at the same time as like the whole Me Too movement. All right. of that just kind of like conglomerated and 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 ended up being this uh, new movement um, a recent movement in korea a feminist movement where new laws have been made to protect women's rights um which is huge because it uh, korea is uh, a very patriarchal society so it's mm. it's nice to see i i was interested because i was like man if this book which also became a movie like was one of the reasons for that i think that it's it's an important read Excellent. Okay. Well, I look forward to getting p- plenty of like cross-cultural knowledge and acquisition in that episode or those two episodes. That should be a fascinating journey for me, as I know only very small bits about those issues, uh, especially in South Korea, which, yeah, I've, I've heard a bit from you. I also think, to be fair, I did want to um, clarify this. I'm pretty sure the prompt I gave you was specifically translated from Korean only because yes, I know right. how you've recommended things from Korea f- to us and some friends before. To us, meaning me and my roommate, but yeah, to friends before, like our friend group. I know that you've been, this is a thing you've cared about. <laughs> so I was like, well, yes. well, I'll throw it to you and we can, yeah. I, I specifically mentioned Korean, um, just to be clear, but no, this That's seems true. like a fascinating. Uh, and contemporary read, so I'm excited by that. Okay. Yeah. Part two, uh, The Body from Stephen King's Different Seasons next week on March 12th. That's a Friday. Uh, folks, as always, thanks for listening through the pod. We appreciate you, and we will see you between the pages. Between the pages.